Hello and welcome to History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be Paul Hinlicky. Um, Dr. Hinlicky was gracious enough to come back on the podcast and talk with us a little bit about some of the political developments of the 20th century and how one uh, theologian, a Slovakian theologian named Samuel Stefan Osuski, how he responded to some of the challenges of Nazism, of communism, uh, and, and just the difficulties of being in a smaller country during these great wars and battles. Um, and, and so uh, we find, of course, that through it all, uh, it was uh, Osuski's faith, um, and especially his reading of the scriptures, including Revelation and Job, uh, which gave him solace during some of his imprisonment um, and eventual exile by the communists communists after the end of World War II. Um, so Paul Hinlicky comes to us from uh, the Queen of the Sciences podcast, um, and so this, we are grateful to do another crossover episode with them. Um, and we have a few episodes coming up. We have one coming up with Zach Hicks on Thomas Cranmer. We have one coming up with Grant Kaplan on Faith and Reason. Uh, we've got one coming up with... Um, Ruben Rosario Rodriguez um, on uh, sort of understanding um, theology in the 21st century. Um, so we've got a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, hope that you enjoy listening to this podcast. Please do rate us, review us on iTunes, um, and uh, let others know about the show. We'd love to hear from you, um, so you can feel free to message us at fa on Facebook. Uh, you can also message us at host at ahistoryofchristiantheology.com. Um, so thank you for listening, um, and uh, here's my conversation with Paul Hinlicky. Today I have the privilege of speaking with uh, Dr. Paul Hinlicky, um, and uh, you may recognize his name because we did a episode very recently with Dr. Hinlicky uh, on the topic of one of his uh, theological works, um, Divine Complexity. Uh, but uh, today we're going to talk about a book that he wrote, Between Humanist Philosophy and Apocalyptic Theology, The 20th Century Sojourn of Samuel uh, Stefan Osuski. And I'm sure you will uh, help me pronounce that better. Um, but yeah, it's only, you got it right except for Stefan, S-H, Stefan, Samuel uh, Stefan Osuski. Okay, I wondered about the yeah the um, marker above the S, but yeah, very good. Um, and Dr. Hinlicky is the Tees Professor at Roanoke College in Virginia, um, and the docent of the Protestant Theological Faculty of Comenius University uh, in Slovakia, uh, which I uh, uh, well I kind of know, and also uh, yeah, kind of have, I think you mentioned this, but uh, in the previous conversation, but part of your um, exposure to Osuski came from your time working in Slovakia. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, one of the things, of course, that was fascinating to live there in the 1990s as the country was emerging from 45 years of, of Marxism, Leninism was to talk about the survivors of this period, what they had experienced. And I quickly realized that in his lifetime, this individual, Samuel Stefan Osuski, had lived under imperialism in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, then in the Czechoslovak democracy between the world wars, then uh, during the alliance of uh, independent Slovakia with Nazi Germany under fascism during World War II, and then a brief period of uh, renewed democracy after the end of World War II until the communist coup in February of 1948. 
and he spent the remaining years of his life under the Marxist-Leninist regime. So what a fascinating thing to trace in one biography, this transition through these four major political uh, uh, epochs. Yeah, that's right. I I guess I hadn't thought it in, uh, or I sort of um, understood that in a new light. Yeah, I mean, basically every ki- like major kind of um, political organization almost uh, in the 20th century, he experienced all of those, huh? That's right. Yeah, and he was kind of a nationalist agitator in his youth against the uh, uh, imperialism of the Hungarians. In his uh, that period, he was an opponent of World War One. Um, as dancing as close to the edge as he could uh, without getting into trouble with the state. But he called into question the bloodshed of World War I. Um, And then, um, of course, as we'll learn, I hope today, his heroic resistance to fascist policies and the deportation of the Slovak Jews Mm. to Auschwitz uh, and then, for the very same reasons, got into trouble with the Marxist-Leninist regime later on. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, as you say, just a totally uh, – a very fascinating life uh, with all these political considerations, but also a great uh, theologian, a leader in the Lutheran Church in Slovakia, a bishop uh, for part of his time. Um, and he wrote several theological works, and I thought maybe uh, I would actually begin with one of my favorite quotes, uh, which comes from one of the last works that he wrote, uh, the Gallery of the New Testament Figures. But I think it just gives a sense of uh, his comfort uh, in his faith uh, during all of this. Um, so this is on 164 of, of your book, but he says, Often I read the Bible, but probably the Bible is never so close to me as during the 63 days of political imprisonment and isolation in 1944, when dignities and name were taken away and I became a mere number. When many friends abandoned me, the best friend the Bible did not abandon me. She so conversed me with, conversed with this imprisoned, weak, and declining person, and so deepened my feeling for people that I forgave them. And she so strengthened my faith that I easily overcome the suffering. Holy dear Bible, what can you do when people do not read you or consider you? But how powerfully you speak and work when someone opens your old but not antiquated pages and reads and reads and meditates. Uh, only why do so many people not take joy in you? So I thought uh, we'd just start with that quote just so the audience can get a sense of uh, the theology of Osuski, his personal uh, faith, and what it meant to him during this struggle. Uh, but could you say a little bit more about uh, Osuski and maybe even this quote? You know, that's a wonderful quote that you've read, and it's very inspiring in many ways. But it also indicates a kind of a deep tension in Osuski's intellectual life. Because on the one hand, he inherited, I think that quote talks about learning the Bible earlier on from his mother's knee, Mm. uh, right? And this is kind of deeply in the ethos of the uh, Church of the Augsburg Confession in Slovakia, this this Bible-based piety. Um, Reading the Bible is practically the sacrament. (laughs) <laughs> uh, of this church, really seriously, it, it's a, it's a Bible-based piety, um, and Bible reading, of course, is a sacramental experience. Uh, I'm speaking loosely, but I think that's that's really on target. And yet, uh, intellectually, um, as he came of maturity at the 
uh, uh, end of the at the beginning of the turn of the 20th century, um, and was educated in Prague, uh, where there was a rather liberal rationalistic school of biblical criticism. Um, he in, in inherited and imbibed intellectually the 19th century historical criticism of the Bible. And his whole life is a kind of a tension between uh, this piety that he learned from his mother's knee uh, that you just expressed in that wonderful quote and his intellectual uh, uh, discoveries of that the Bible was not a perfect and inerrant uh, dictated word from God uh, that was preserved from all error, that it required serious study and interpretation in order to extract its meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and so that tension existed in Osuski his entire life, which is why I, sub I called the book Between Humanist Philosophy and Apocalyptic Theology. Yeah, and so that kind of gets us right at the heart of what you're trying to do throughout the narrative, uh, which is essentially follow Osuski as he uh, works his way through his own theology. So you sort of describe this, uh, as you just said, the the German rationalism, uh, the kind of more historical critical modes of reading scripture, um, sometimes called liberal theology, where that was the way. So he kind of has this training from his mother's knee, uh, but then he has uh, a different kind of education uh, in the sort of liberal theology. But ultimately, uh, he comes to find some resolution by the end of his life um, and maybe even a change towards apocalyptic theology. Is that uh, right? Which is what you kind of you see in him towards the end of. Well, and I should say I called it his life, but I think actually, to be fair, it's the end of his writing life, which isn't actually the end of his life because he's uh, confined to obscurity for the majority of the, the remainder of his life, right? Yeah, that, that you're right that there is a kind of a, a resolution in the last great book, The Gallery of New Testament Figures, um, which was, by the way, was uh, the, the typescripts were lost except for one copy that was maintained by the, the, the typist, the person who took Osuski's dictation from his handwritten manuscript. And he, he, the typist kept this copy and only in the late 1990s revealed its existence and got a grant for the students to key it uh, into a digital program and produce this 1,000-page book. Wow. Uh, <laughs> which was his final literary product, which appeared 20 years after his death. Mm. Appeared 20 years after his death, but written uh, in the 50s, in the mid-50s, is that right? Yeah, it was typed, the typist typed it in the 1950s, secretly, of course, because if the if the Eshtabe, which is their, the secret police, have discovered it, they would have gotten in trouble, and of course it would have been destroyed. Mm. Well, I have... Uh, well, I guess while we're on that thought, so and and this goes to sort of the last great resistance in his uh, in part of his uh, life. So in that time, he was resisting the Marxist Leninists. Is that right? Resisting resisting those who were in power in uh, his area of Slovakia, uh, what is modern day Slovakia, I guess. Right. Uh, yeah. Yes, that's right. Uh, he was he was def uh, he was deposed. He was a professor at the theological faculty. And he was the first one to be deposed by the Marxist-Leninist regime. 
when they took over the seminary faculty and replaced its teachers with uh, minions of the of the socialist state. Um, and he was sent into internal exile. Mm. So he went back to his home village and he lived there for the next 25 years in quiet and secret. Mm. Not allowed to preach or publish. And they were uh, threatened by him because of his persistent uh, resistance under various forms of government in the area, but but even most recently this Marxist-Leninist, right? So his he was unwilling to kind of bend under uh, the pressure of the government. Is that right? Yeah, it's well. You, let me back up the story a little bit, uh, okay. Chad. Um, I first discovered Osuski when. Um, one of the prison, they were called at that time the prison pastors, the pastors of the Lutheran Church uh, who had been imprisoned under socialism uh, for disloyalty of various stripes. And he told me that Osuski had uh, lectured to the assembly of the clergy in 1937, I think it was 37 or 38, uh, an essay called, uh, a lecture called The Philosophy of uh, Fascism, Hitlerism, and Bolshevism. Um, so I looked up this lecture and I read it and I was stunned that in 1937, Osuski was predicting the future down to the, down to the jots and the tittles. It was amaz- amazing to me uh, that he had such an understanding of the ideological dynamics uh, that were going on, that what would happen. And he was warning the clergy to be prepared for very difficult days. So that was my first clue to the significance of this this man. Uh, and he um, then uh, uh, was instrumental in 1942 in publishing a public letter from uh, the Lutheran Church rejecting the deportation of the Jews into Poland uh, to what they knew would be their death sentences. Um, and that uh, uh, he, he managed to get that, uh, that uh, objection out in public, which of course got him into serious trouble, but not yet arrested under the Slovak fascist state but in 1944, when the Nazi armies came into Slovakia and took over the country, um, at that point, um, um, he was arrested by the Gestapo and imprisoned and until his health almost broke. Uh, and then when the war ended with the Russian armies driving out the Nazis, he was rehabilitated and greeted as, you know, a heroic figure. And, and he was a very prominent person, the one person who had predicted what was coming and object, objected heroically against the Nazi fascist policies. But for the ver- that very reason, a threat to the uh, Bolsheviks coming to power in 1948, because he had also in that 1937 lecture warned against the dangers of Marxism Leninism. Yeah, that's I, I and again as I'm hearing as I'm talking with you, you know, I read I read through the book and 
admittedly, I'm I, you know I don't know that I dwelled on every single page, but it just strikes me what a um, as much as I should have, but uh, it strikes me just what a whiplash that must have been. On the one hand, he was re- released from uh, the uh, the fascists connected with Hitler. Um, and the Gestapo, and so he must be thinking, that's it, all right, I've been freed, I can go about my business, and then here, you know, not too many years later, just right back into the thick of, like, you know, right back into the thick of things, like, go back underground, I mean, yeah, that must have been such a hard thing, like, all right, I've done my time, I've gotten out, but but no, just going to go right back into it. No, you can say of all the terrible crimes Hitler committed against humanity is that he gave anti-communism a bad name. <laughs> that's pretty good um well uh i guess as we're kind of going so now we're sort of working back backwards but i think it's good to foreground uh the um foreground the importance of this man in the midst of all of these sort of political currents and movements but but as you say uh it's interesting to go back even to the first world war uh because osuski begins by uh writing a a, a one of his books where he catalogs all the German theologians who were um, just uh, rubber stamping uh, the the German military conquests in the First World War. Um, and so, you know, he he has these sort of inklings of um, of resistance starting all the way back then. Like, you know, we shouldn't necessarily just say because the state says we need to go to war, uh, then Christians and their churches should bless it. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. He um, he he shares the general. At the time, there was a movement called religious socialism, led by Ragaz out of Switzerland, and Osuski was very sympathetic to religious socialism, which was for him not Marxism, Marxism-Leninism, because it was explicitly based upon Christian understandings of divine transcendence, and. Uh, incarnational humanism and things like that. So he was already uh, also opposed to the idea of empire uh, as a, in principle, a multi-ethnic political unit, but in fact, always there was one nation that was more equal than others. For him as a Slovak, that was the Hungarians. um, And he was a therefore part of the movement for Slovak national independence uh, politically. That was part of it. And then, of course, what happens in World War I is that the Austro-Hungarian Empire has a mass conscription in, in which all of these minority ethnicities, like the Slovaks, among others, are being sent as cannon fodder to the front lines. And in his own congregation, a large, a large congregation, in Western Slovakia, he counted hundreds upon hundreds of war deaths among his own youth from in World War One. So his disillusionment with the trench warfare and the messy politics of World War One came to expression in that little book on the war, pointing yeah. out, yeah, pointing out also how the German theologians were singing Hallelujah to the Kaiser, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's uh, yeah, so many fascinating trends here. Uh, but 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 all the way back then, he probably doesn't seem to have uh, taken this sort of uh, theological turn that he eventually does. Uh, going back even to the or you know 
at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about uh, the gallery of New Testament figures. Uh, but can you give us a sense of his kind of theological journey? Like what are you know, so we, we can see all of these relig- uh, all these uh, political movements that he is uh, sort of in the midst of and and uh, pushing back against. Uh, but he's also. He's also studying a bunch of different kind of uh, theological traditions and movements. So can you get a sense of, of how that is at his sort of core conviction through all of this is not uh, precisely about finding the right sort of politics or at least finding the right sort of politics outside of his Christian uh, uh, theological understanding, uh, but actually those two are kind of working together but, but are still also a kind of journey? Yeah, I think you, you can. You know, in Europe in generally, in Protestant Europe, particularly since the time of the Reformation, the, when you don't no longer have a pope and you no longer have an episcopacy and you no longer have a transnational understanding of the, of the church, um, except in an ethereal spiritual sense, um, what happens almost inevitably is that Christianity becomes enculturated uh, into the rise of national consciousness. And so Osuski was part of that um, 19th century romanticism in which language, culture, nationality, and religion kind of form a, a seamless uh, whole. Um, but he always had the liberal theological idea of a transnational spiritual unity, the law of love, which, which, which supervenes these national religious cultural identities. So that, that was the tension in his thought from the very beginning. Um, but as he's evolving into the 1920s, he has his PhD from Charles University in Prague, but he takes it in the fields of philosophy and law and sociology. And so on the theological faculty, he's, a, he's really what we would call today a philosopher of religion rather than a biblical scholar or a systematic theologian. Um, it's in that capacity that he studies the, these evolutions of modern culture and politics, which prepared him so well then for these later interventions in life. He has a conflict with a fundamentalist pastor named Struharik, who accuses him uh, publicly of denying the virgin birth of Christ. And um, uh, um, this is, is, you know, something of a a terrible upset for him. Um, What he has is uh, simple questions. The virgin, the nativity story is found only in Matthew and in Luke. Uh, the rest of the New Testament knows nothing about it. How significant a doctrine can it be then? Uh, that's a, this is an obvious, legitimate question. And then the stories in Matthew and Luke are not easily reconcilable historically. That's a legitimate question. So his doubts about it were more biblically based. He's not, he's not dogmatically denying the virgin birth of Christ. What he is is questioning its biblical its biblical basis and its uh, and its weight, the weight it ought to have, and so forth. Well, that controversy blows over, uh, but it's an indication that he's not a simple fundamentalist or a simple biblicist. Uh, he's asking questions about church teaching in the light of his study of the Bible. I think that's a, a way to put it. 
but all that becomes passe by the time of the 1930s, when, when uh, the threat of uh, Hitlerism is 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 increasingly intense, and that's uh, Ch Chad where a big change in his perspective occurs, because up until now he was kind of paralyzed between his biblical piety and his liberal theological education. Uh, in terms of scripture studies. Um, but as uh, World War II uh, takes over, and now you have to recognize Slovakia becomes a satellite state of Nazi Germany, and the Slovak army is sent to the Russian front to fight side by side with the Russians, though they were very ineffective militarily because they didn't really want to be doing this. But the point is, is that when he publishes his first book, uh, book during the war um, on the um, on the um, book of uh, which is first I'm forgetting I having a slip of my mind here which book came first um, yeah the end of the world 1941 mm -hmm. that's the commentary on the book of Revelation uh -huh. um, so all of a sudden here in 1941 uh, he's picking up the book of Revelation to write a commentary on it. Why? In 1941, as he's publishing this book, the swastika flies victorious from the coast of France to the outskirts of Moscow. And it is as if the dragon and the beast have conquered the world. That's how he's feeling. You know, yeah. the swastika has replaced the Christian cross um, across the face of Europe. And so What's very powerful about the commentary on the book of Revelation is that he uses his historical critical insight that this apocalypse is not about the literal end of the world. It is about the, it's, it's not about the end of time, but about the time of the end breaking in episodically into mundane uh, secular history. Uh, and so the book of Revelation becomes usable, usable. Uh, to interpret an apocalyptic situation in actual secular history. So as he's suffering under the, the apparent victory of the swastika, he's reading the book of Revelation to exhort his readers to be faithful and true, even to the point of martyrdom, uh, in resisting the dragon and the beast. Right? Yeah. Well, and that sort of makes sense of the, you know, so you call this apocalyptic theology um, and uh, you drawing on and here the you, talk, you called it the um, the episodically uh, the, the time of the end breaking in episodically. So so for for so for that part of the title. Uh, so really, it is actually literally reading the apocalypse of John uh, that he is understanding how uh, God breaks in in human history. Um, in in that sense, uh, in his in his own reading of Revelation, and how that is to help us uh, know how to resist these uh, terrible um, uh, atrocities like the swastika, uh, and it, it reminds me as well. Uh, well, I just did an interview that hasn't aired yet uh, with Scott McKnight, 
Um, he just wrote a book on Revelation. It's uh, something – I can't remember the title, but it includes the word dissidence. And I was talking with Scott about it, and I mentioned that uh, I was reading about Saul Osuski uh, and uh, – uh, sorry, Samuel Osuski uh, and about how uh, Samuel Osuski was reading Revelation. Um, and that, that fit nicely with uh, what, how McKnight was interpreting Revelation. Excellent. I'm happy to hear that, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty intense. So, um, one of the lines that you use as you're kind of thinking through his, uh, turn. So you just mentioned sort of the fundamentalist critique of, uh, Osuski. Um, you say that he doesn't want to make a kind of Boltmanian demythologization, uh, but what you call a deliteralization. Um, so I, could you, could you kind of, uh, Explore that a little bit, a little bit for us. Like, what is what does this move mean for Osuski? Yeah, it's a of course Osuski. This is my interpretation of what Osuski is doing. Osuski himself did not use a term like demythologizing or deliteralizing. Um, so I'm trying to make sense out of this uh, what Osuski is actually doing, and I distinguish between the two this way. Mythos in Greek is simply the word for a story, a narrative. And when you demythologize, what you're actually doing is gutting the story, destroying the narrative, uh, rather than following the narrative to understand its point. Uh, so I reject demythologizing as denarrativizing of scripture. Take away the narrative and you take away scripture. Even the non-narrative sections of scripture are embedded in narrative. So narrative is a key uh, a notion for a, a genuinely scriptural hermeneutic. So by contrast, deliteralization is the standard recognition that earthly language, including the language of narrative, cannot refer literally in the sense of a correspondence kind of theory uh, to, to God, uh, because God uh, uh, somehow uh, as creator transcends the categories of time and space. Um, he's not alien to the categories of time and space, but he transcends them. And so deliteralization is simply qualifying a naive reading of narrative in order to make it clear that the point of the narrative is to instruct about deity, to talk about God. Um, so the classic instance of this in the Lutheran tradition is Luther's interpretation of the ascension of Christ. His opponent was thinking that the body of Jesus had ascended up to a local heaven somewhere, and there it was confined and could not be capable of being present in the Eucharist. Um, and Luther said, this is naive literalism. Um, ascension to the right hand of God does not mean that God the Father literally has a right hand and Christ is seated there on a velvet cushion <laughs> with the angels dancing around him, something like that. No, the right hand of God is a figure of speech for the omnipotent power of the Creator. So the ascension to the right hand of God means that Christ is invested with the omnipotent power of God. Uh, in his messianic, uh, exalted messianic office, where he must reign until he subdues all things under his feet. Um, and so that, that's what I mean by deliteralization, where we understand the narrative to be referring to and instructing us about the self-revelation of God. Mm. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. One of the questions uh, that I often ask my guests is, what is one thing that you once thought was true and now think is false, and one thing was false and now think is true? Um, and so I often try to get my my guests to sort of open up in their conversation by asking this question, and then it gives you a sense of like what makes people change their mind and uh, that kind of thing. And it's interesting to think about Osuski in that way because his whole story is a kind of um, a change in his mind towards this apocalyptic situation, uh, this apocalyptic theology from uh, the situation in which he was living in, uh, which kind of opened him up to. And I think it's interesting because you you know you could have seen him just straight abandon his faith at this point. Like, look, uh, it's been so disastrous uh, for us as uh, Slovaks, for us as Christians, uh, for us as Lutherans. Like, it you know you could have just said uh, enough with this. Uh, but yeah. in fact, by reading Job and by reading Revelation, some of those difficult texts in our Scripture. Uh, to interpret, he finds a sort of revitalization, a new place for himself uh, within his faith. Yeah, I was talking to Catherine Schifferdecker, who's a kind of an expert on the book of Job, and explaining to her the um, the Osuski's interpretation of Job. By the way, that's the book that comes in 1944-45, The Mystery of the Cross. Uh, and it's basically an extended study of the book of Job and of course, the questions of theodicy at this time, at the as as the end as the end of World War II is approaching, are just enormous. Where is God in all this suffering? And in fact, a man my age, uh, Peter uh, Gajic, in Slovakia, who's kind of the Slovak expert on Osuski, um, often points out how many people simply lost their Christian faith in view of the massive brutality and destruction and death of World War II. We have to remember, something like 50 million people died in World War II, and that kind of massive murder and mayhem and destruction would leave anyone saying, where is God in this midst? As Elie Wiesel famously said in Auschwitz, where yeah. is God when you, you see them hanging from the gibbets and so forth? And of course, Osuski would answer, God is right there hanging with them on the gibbets. Like Bonhoeffer, he would say, God is there suffering with us, something along those lines. But the mystery of the cross um, in his interpretation of the book of Job um, uh, is a very interesting attempt at a kind of the what I call a theodicy of faith not a philosophical or rationalistic theodicy, uh, famously expressed in something like, this is the best of all possible worlds. Uh, the, though, even though I think that's terribly misunderstood by Voltaire's um, kind Indeed. of cheap, cheap shot criticisms of Leibniz. Right. But a theodicy of faith uh, is one in which um, the promises of God include finally the promises of the victory of righteousness over unrighteousness. So it's kind of an eschatological uh, theodicy, something like that. But Osuski does take up this difficult book of the, of the, um, of, of um, the book of Job uh, to interpret the sufferings of his times in 1944-5. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting you talk about the sort of devastation of faith as well in the aftermath of World War II. And uh, I know we're going to get to sort of comparing – or not maybe not comparing, but sort of the conversation of Osuski among other theologians uh, during World War II. But uh, when I, I spent a summer in Berlin and I remember visiting Bonhoeffer's church um, and – or well, one of the places where he was uh, um, uh, – did he do his vicarage? Uh, maybe I can't remember, but uh, anyway, but just how empty uh, many of the Evangelisch Kirche were, uh, and even the ones where this guy who Bonhoeffer, who I'd looked up to as kind of a um, uh, you know an exemplar of the faith, um, but how you know for me it was like going to a place where oh you know the commemoration of this great man, but it was empty. Um, and, oh. and most of the people didn't even, you know, there was a sign there, but it might as well have been, uh, you know, useless because most of the people, uh, walking the streets of Berlin didn't care, uh, about Bonhoeffer yeah. in the same way that I did. Yeah. Yeah. The, the decline of the churches in Europe is really quite alarming, though I have to say, I see lots of signs of vitality in the Slovak Lutheran church. Uh, the generation that I was educating in the 1990s has now uh, become the leading pastors in that church, and I see a lot of vitality there. Uh, I don't think in Germany there was ever a true theological reckoning with what happened under Hitler until it was too late, it, mm. well into the 1960s, when the reckoning had to come as nothing but a uh, I accuse, I accuse, I accuse. Um, and uh, why did the German church fail after World War II to reckon with what had happened? Well, partly the Cold War explains that, but I think also other factors which we needn't go into here. Um, uh, the, there was no genuine reckoning with, uh, with uh, the collaboration of the leading um, church people in the Protestant world with Nazism. Yeah. Um, and so that, that just, uh, makes me wonder. So in your time in Slovakia, like, did, were you able, are, are there, th is there theologians who have done this kind of reckoning work? Um, I mean, you know, Asuski's manuscript, as you say, came out in the nineties. So there may not have even, I don't know, did people draw on him as a kind of figure uh, in this earlier, not knowing about this book? Or what has kind of been the reception of, of Lutheranism in the light of all uh, that, that Slovakia had gone through? Well, you know, one of the differences in Slovakia was that for the 45 years under Marxism, there was no, uh, there was no limit to the critiques of collaboration with Nazis. Mm. I mean, that, that's all that they learned. They learned, <laughs> you know, they, they learned to curse fascism and they learned to curse Nazism. Uh, and rightly so to that extent, of course, but that critique had, was never able to be turned on the Marxist Leninist regime. It was yeah. the Marxist Leninist regime that sponsored. Um, I had a relative, an uneducated woman, but a, a very personable and a Christian who told me how her class as a schoolgirl, they were bussed over the border to Auschwitz to visit the death camps and how they, of course, were taught that the, the, they were liberated by the Red Army and so forth. It was all part of the Marxist regime's propaganda. Um, so there was always a reckoning with fascism and, and with Nazism 
uh, there. What has not fully happened yet is a reckoning with the 45 years of Marxism-Leninism. That, that has only become possible in the last 20 years or so. Mm. Uh, and just a point of clarification, uh, you often uh, throughout the book use the phrase, that phrase like either Bolshevism or then Marxist-Leninism. And, and is that uh, – so very specific rather than just saying communism bluntly. Um, is that to be sort of more accurate within their context or is there also a sort of a political uh, or other reason for, for making that designation? I, I, th- I think so. I, I think that – First of all, Bolshevism is the term that Osuski uses. Yeah. Um, and Bolshevism is Lenin's strategy during the Russian Revolution uh, to centralize authority in the Communist Party because the working class always goes astray if they're not led by the Communist Party, <laughs> you know. And that, of course, means the dictatorship of the pro- proletariat means the dictatorship of the Communist Party with Lenin at the head. Um, that's Marxism-Leninism, right? That yeah. kind of thing, which is very different from Western humanistic Marxism, for example, in the Frankfurt School or something like that. And I just think in terms of precision, that's, that's we have to talk that way. Ah, helpful. Um well, I, I think I, I did sort of want to uh, – when, when, I, when I first saw the title of the book, um, it reminded me I was able to interview Stanley Hauerwas, who wrote uh, – recently wrote a book on uh, Karl Barth, uh, The Apocalyptic Humanism of Karl Barth. And he says uh, – he, he talks about the, the purpose for writing this book, that it's my conviction that theology is a descriptive discipline aimed at helping us discover the power of the narrative that is the gospel – for determining the way the world is, as well as how we are to live in it. Uh, and then he says, Bart, I hope to show, shared my view. Uh, and, and he says, with some irony, I say this, uh, that theological <laughs> claims uh, work as a form of practical wisdom. And, and then it, it, with, throughout the book, he uses Bart as his example um, of someone who uh, understood the connection between the truthfulness of Christian speech uh, and politics and so he he thinks that Bart is his great example for this. Uh, but reading your book, uh, I wondered if Osuski, in a certain way, wasn't even more so a, an example of the truthfulness of Christian speech in the sense that uh, throughout his life he was resisting various regimes of uh, of you know of death, I guess. Uh, Domination, in yeah. yeah. Yeah, and domination, uh, and and suffered for it not only in the days of captivity under Nazism, under the Gestapo, but then under the Marxist-Leninist regime. So I thought I'd let you kind of respond. Uh, how do you know? Do you, I don't know if you know Hauerwas's work that well or whatever, but but it just struck me that there was some similarities there. Oh uh, yeah, I know Stanley Hauerwas's work well. Yes, and I, I, I admire him as a significant theological thinker. Um, let me just say quickly. In the 1937 Conference of the Pastors, Osuski was not the only speaker. His colleague on the theological faculty, a man named Beblavi, lectured uh, and made the claim that the most faithful Lutherans are the ones now in the concentration camps, 1937. And of course, he's referring to Niemöller at that time, Martin Niemöller. Um, so, uh, and Beblavi then basically argued 
for the truthfulness of Karl Barth's doctrine of the Word of God in that same conference. So remember, Osuski was not a systematic theologian by profession, and he limited himself to speaking uh, to the, his field, his discipline of philosophy, political philosophy. But he was certainly aware of what of Barth's significance in the opposition to Nazism. And secondly, we have to remember that most people at this time in history did not know the church dogmatics, which were only beginning to be published in the 1930s in German, in Barth's difficult, demanding German, right? Uh, and and um, what they did know was the initial uh, commentary on Romans, which to a person like Osuski sounded like it was making God so utterly other and transcendent that he had no relationship to humanity, let alone positive relationship to humanist philosophy. Um, and so that this is a development of the much later theology of Karl Barth, which Osuski then could not have known about, and so he was ignorant of. Uh, but to the material point that you're making, yes, uh, for Osuski, um, this last book that he wrote, The Gallery of New Testament Figures, is kind of a return to the pre-critical uh, tradition of Midrash, in which you take a bare-boned um, biblical character uh, portrait of a biblical figure. You, you don't know anything about their psychology, their motivations, their history, other than the bare facts that uh, Peter got up and followed Jesus, but then later Peter denied Jesus in the courtyard. That Jesus got, Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, but then he lost his faith and fell. So you, you get these bare-bone narratives, and then this traditionally this often this often caused pre-critical commentators to write psychological stories that would make sense of the narrative. You know what was going through Peter's head, things like that. And that's the method, the pre-critical method that Osuski is picking up on. By the way, I don't know if Osuski knew Martin Luther's lectures on Genesis, but that's the method Luther uses in his lectures on Genesis. He takes the stories of the patriarchs and he creates a kind of a novelistic uh, retelling of the story in which he explores the feelings and the motives going on in these characters. Most famously, for example, the story of Abraham taking Isaac to the Mount of Moriah. What's going through Abraham's head? Why is he doing what he's doing? What about Isaac? What's going on in his head? Things like this. So this this kind of midrashic expansion of the bare-bone narratives, that's what Osuski's doing in his a gallery of New Testament figures. Why? Because it creates a humanistic portrait of what it means to believe in the Christian God. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, it's a it's a very fascinating. I remember, you know, getting to that section and just being struck by the I mean, in a set, not exactly the novelty, I guess the novelty in a 21st century t sense, like I don't see many people doing this kind of thing anymore. Uh, but it is, but it is a deep uh, engagement and love with the scriptures uh, to think so hard, a kind of, uh, you know, meditation on the of each figure like that is um, 
you know, it, like I said, is unlike anything that I'd really seen before, especially going through every, you know, for over a thousand pages, going through so <laughs> many of the of the figures. Well, Chad, let's face it. He had a lot of time on his hands <laughs> being an in internal exile. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, well, uh, so I think kind of uh, you, it, like I said, I, I, I just was. Uh, it's interesting to think about how Osuski fits in with these other figures. We've mentioned Bonhoeffer. Uh, we've mentioned Bart. Uh, are, you know, it, it makes me wonder, are, are there other people unknown uh, from, uh, from Europe, other pastors who have sort of like such a significant uh, theological and then just sort of human uh, witness for us that we don't know their stories about like so you know so i guess i understand in a sense why people don't know osuski as well uh given that his the the book uh that you talk about was not published until the 90s um and he was in an exile and and sort of was cast away for so many uh years um uh, but are, are there other people like that that we don't know their stories um or maybe is it just my own uh lack of uh education well, I, I, you know, clearly Osuski was not only uh, cut off from the knowledge of the Western world all through the Marxist-Leninist period, uh, but the obscurity of his language. Slovak is spoken by, by five or six million people in the world. It's a, <laughs> it's a very minority language. Uh, and I was the only person capable, I think, of, of actually making his story known in English, which is one of the, mo the motives I had in writing the book. Um, I think that one of the most fruitful areas to explore would be uh, the resistance, the Christian resistance in Denmark and in Norway and in the Netherlands. We know a little bit about uh, resistance in France, um, uh, you know, but I, I don't know that there were intellectual figures of the stature of Osuski in those contexts. I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that yeah, that's 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 very helpful. Well, um, I our time is uh, coming to a close, uh, but I I just wondered if there, you know, uh, maybe uh, you could mention a little bit like sort of the influence that Osuski has had on your own uh, faith and theology, or uh, any anything else that uh, you would want our uh, my listeners, our listeners, uh, to know about um, Osuski or or uh, the the Slovak people. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that the tradition of uh, philosophical humanism um, is largely being renounced today in our Western culture uh, by all forms of deconstruction. Um, and uh, the Anthropocene is largely regarded as an epoch of human arrogance uh, and self-aggrandizement at the expense of the rest of the planet and creatures. I think humanism is in a great deal of trouble. And like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who writes in The Ethics, commenting on the fact that in the resistance, suddenly the humanists have discovered their mother and their shelter in the Christian people. And perhaps this is the signal of a reconciliation uh, of the humanism coming out of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance with the Reformation theology that Bonhoeffer represented. And that would be certainly my hope, and that's kind of what I see in the legacy of Samuel Stefan Osuski, who, who 
did not renounce but overcame the limitations of his own training in humanistic philosophy uh, and found a non-literal but serious interpretation of biblical apocalyptic as the as the as the as the as the basis from which that reconciliation with humanism could occur. Well, Dr. Hitlicky, it has been uh, quite a pleasure to speak with you again. Um, and uh, what what a gift that you're able to you know bring the knowledge of Osuski uh, to the English speaking world. Um, and uh, I really uh, appreciate your time and and the hard work and the writing and researching this book, uh, but also uh, spending an hour with me. Thank you, Chad. It's been a pleasure as usual.